0: Welcome to Audiobook Test Drive. In today's episode, we are featuring an excerpt from Morocco Jones, The Syndicate Murder Cult, written by Jack Baines. A simple Hollywood blackmail scheme turns deadly. Morocco Jones figured this assignment would be a breeze. After all, sending a guy who specialized in busting up crime syndicates and international spy rings to Los Angeles to track down some two-bit blackmailer seemed like using a cannon to kill a mosquito. To Morocco, it seemed like a good excuse for a nice little Hollywood vacation. Catch a bit of sun, bed a few starlets, and relax poolside with a large snifter of brandy. But Morocco couldn't have been more wrong. Because this was no two-bit blackmail scheme, the half-a-billion-dollar payoff, for whoever was behind the plot, was money worth killing for. From the moment Morocco Jones hit fabulous movie land, things began to explode in some very strange and terrifying directions. First there was the reception committee of Mussulmen who waylaid Morocco in the dark, right outside his client's fancy Spanish villa. Next was the ex-Hood who had become high priest of a powerful and sinister religious cult that didn't draw the line even at murder when it came to keeping its secrets secret. Then there was the scandal sheet that raked in the Do-Re-Mi from the studios for the truly scandalous stories it didn't print about Screenland's kings and queens. Add in a crooked cop named Doheny who didn't like Morocco's lip, and the unsolved double murder of a famous screen beauty and her husband that tied into it all somehow. Nor could Morocco overlook the incendiary blonde starlet in the oh-so-revealing dress, who seemed to have slept with half his suspects and was always one step ahead of him, wherever he went. There were a lot of angles to figure, even for an operative like Morocco Jones, and his only hope of solving it was a lush-out cold from a ten-day bender and a raw cub reporter who looked more destined to end up being written about in the opits than getting his byline on the story of the year, when and if it broke. This was a case with the distinct odor of an organized blackmail ring with syndicate tie-ups. And now for your listening pleasure, an excerpt from Morocco Jones, The Syndicate Murder Cult.
1: CHAPTER ONE The motel on Highland Avenue in the Hollywood Bowl section where Morocco Jones registered one evening was a wide cut above the average. The swimming pool was almost pretentious and most inviting on this warm September evening. The patio and palm-studded parking area were spacious. The bedroom and living room were plush and had privacy that a hotel would not give him. There was a long mirror on the wall over the telephone stand. As he reached for the phone, Morocco glanced in the mirror at the familiar face, strong of jaw and mouth, with craggy brows, alert gray eyes, flecked oddly with green, and a strong nose that fitted the general theme of the face. His shock of well-trimmed brown hair struggled to conceal unruly waves, highlighting a tinge of auburn. The hair suited the rough symmetry and power of the face beneath. Morocco grinned at his reflection sardonically and said aloud, You're big enough and ugly enough, but are you smart enough? He picked up the phone and gave a number to the desk clerk. He listened to the phone ring twice. Then a voice with a houseboy accent said, Mr. Palano's residence. The voice gave the R and L sound. When Morocco asked, Is Mr. Pirano at home? The voice answered cautiously. Who call Mr. Palano, please? Tell Mr. Pirano that Morocco Jones is calling, please. Another voice came on the line so promptly that Morocco had a picture of a man standing behind the houseboy, waiting. This voice was sharp, incisive, yet with an odd quality that might be fear or something altogether different. Jones! I've been waiting for your call ever since I got De Brava's wire yesterday afternoon. Did you want to come up and talk with me? That was the idea, Morocco said. If it's all right with you, I'll come right around. Where are you staying? The Knickerbocker, Morocco lied deliberately. Have you a car? No, I use cabs. I'm actually a short distance from you. But the winding roads up the steeps hillside in this section make my place difficult to locate. Just give me the directions, I'll find it, Morocco said. Then he listened as Gardo Perano gave detailed instructions for his route. When the cab he phoned for appeared, Morocco gave the cabbie the address. The cabbie groaned. Jeez, mister, I just ain't got any luck. Every time I hit the hillside sections of Hollywood, I get lost. And any guy that goes up into that outpost section needs a compass and a couple of Indian guides or else he finds himself a cave and forgets all about coming back. Following Gardo Pirano's directions, it wasn't as bad as the cabbie feared. Morocco left the cab in a narrow winding street at a point where the apron of a five-car garage widened the road to a sweep that allowed for the turning of the car. When the cab had rolled down the hill again, Morocco walked up beyond the garage and stood for a moment looking down at the garden just below him, his eyes quickly studying the split levels of the house and landscaping. His heavy sloping shoulders under the well-cut gray suit advertised tremendous power, but were as relaxed as his long, heavily muscled arms. The garden below him lay in dark circles, oblongs and rectangles of flower beds and masses of shrubbery. There was a heavy scent of night-blooming flowers in the air. Hibiscus blooms glimmered in reflected light, with a sort of eerie incandescence. At the far side of the garden, a stucco house in the Spanish colonial style sprawled expansively under a red-tiled roof. The side of the house fronting the garden glittered with the glass of many French doors. Somewhere back of the glass, there was a light in another room, a light that just managed to reach the French doors with the faint echo of a glow. At the end of the house, a wrought iron lantern over a door threw a tent of radiance on wide brick walks surrounded by shrubbery. Beyond the light, a bank dropped away into immediate darkness to disclose far below the dramatic panorama of the lights of Hollywood. Still farther out was a vista of Los Angeles, forming a fantastic pattern of colors and rectangular designs. To the right of the entrance lantern, in the shadows of a magnolia tree, a long flight of steps bisected the lip of the bank and led downward into darkness that swallowed them before they had proceeded twenty steps. Morocco went down the short flight of steps that led from the garages to the garden, He crossed the garden and stood under the tent of light at the entrance, the snap brim of his hat slanting a shadow across his jaw and softening the hard line of his mouth. He extended a forefinger toward the bell button at the side of the door. A voice to his left behind him said, Don't do it, Buster. Nick's on the bell. Just step back from the door slowly. Half turning as he stepped back, Morocco saw the man, tall in the shadows his face a white blur in the deeper shadows of the trailing branches of a jacaranda tree. Light from the bulb over the door glinted on the metal of a gun. The man moved, taking a quick step forward, partly out of the shadows. Morocco saw his white teeth gleaming in a sarcastic smile. There was something, Morocco decided, that the guy liked very much about the situation. He seemed very sure of himself. Sure? and pleased. The smile vanished as he snapped, "'Take him, boys!' Two forms came from either side out of the darkness. They came fast, two big men with saps swinging. One of them was smiling happily, but the other had a dark, taut face that was set in hard lines of concentration. The serious worker, Morocco thought. The green flecks in Morocco's eyes flared until they swallowed all the gray.' He left the brick wall in a low, flat tackle in the direction of the smiling one. He heard the swish of the sap as the man snapped it down viciously in a very professional manner. Morocco took the sap on his left shoulder and felt the jar along his arm to the fingertips. The arm went numb, but he had it around the man's middle as they went over the edge of the steep, ivy-clad slope together. The fingers of Morocco's right hand caught his own left wrist and gripped hugging the man to him as they hit the slope and slid a few yards, then rolled. The man tried feebly to butt, knee, and elbow as they rolled, but nothing he did had any zing behind it, for he was mostly rolling, his natural reflexes fighting to halt the fall. The smiling man hit the brick wall at the bottom first, and the breath went out of him in a grunt of shock. Morocco released his left wrist and hooked his right to the guy's unprotected jaw. The hood collapsed snugly against the wall, his face buried in the thick ivy. Morocco pawed around in the ivy until he found his hat. He pushed it back into shape before putting it on, then sat on the edge of the wall massaging his left shoulder, feeling sensation tingle back into his arm muscles. His eyes measured the distance they had rolled and estimated it to be about 150 feet. At the top of the slope, leather slapped on the concrete steps as someone started to race down. Grinning tautly, Morocco loosened the laces of his shoes and slipped them off. Holding the shoes in his left hand, he ran lightly up a dozen steps, then dropped under the iron handrail into the darkness beside the steps. The guy coming down was the one who had spoken to him first from the shadow of the jacaranda tree. Morocco could see the glint of light on the gun in his hand, He was coming down fast, so fast that when Morocco's right hand caught his ankle, the guy dived into air and landed head first, several steps below. His body jackknifed over his head, hit the steps loosely, then fell over the side onto the ivy-covered slope. Still carrying his shoes in his left hand, Morocco ran silently up the long flight of steps, massaging the muscles of his left arm and shoulder as he ran. The third man stood at the top of the slope between Morocco and the lighted entrance. He was a few feet back from the edge of the slope, his blond head bent forward, peering into the darkness. Looking for someone? Morocco asked. As the man whirled around, Morocco hit him across the jaw with the edge of his hand and the guy continued to whirl. When his back came around, Morocco lifted a stockinged foot and catapulted him over the edge. While he was in the air, he gave a strangled yell. Then he hit the slope and started to roll. His body made thumping, tearing noises in the ivy. Feeling strength flow slowly back into his left arm, Morocco smiled down into the darkness as he sat on the tiled apron at the door of the entrance and retied his shoes. He got to his feet, gave his suit a quick hand brushing, adjusted his tie and hat again. Then, looking as smoothly groomed and casually assured as he had when he stepped out of the cab, he punched the doorbell and listened to the soft chimes somewhere in the house. The face of the little man who opened the door belonged to the voice that had answered the phone. It was a flat, blank, Asiatic face that stared impassively at Morocco, the little black eyes gleaming in the light. Morocco Jones, your Mr. Pirano is expecting me. Morocco followed the houseboy through a foyer that smelled faintly of sandalwood into a huge room that would, if anyone had the strength to pull back the heavy brocaded draperies, look down through its row of windows along the slope that Morocco had so lately descended. The man at the other end of the room rose gracefully from his chair. Rising gracefully from such a chair gave testimony to the man's poise and suppleness— the chair was a huge, legless, deeply stuffed lounging device, only slightly elevated from the floor. Its heavily tufted back, embracingly possessive. The man was something over six feet tall, with fine shoulders carried well. His dark hair was combed back from a high, olive forehead in waves that looked almost marcelled in their uniformity. His nose was aquiline, aristocratic, his dark eyes were wide-spaced, set deep, and the lips were full, almost too red against the faint olive of his face. He held out a hand as he crossed the room toward Morocco, his smile warming his face. His voice had the clipped, precise diction of the South American who had thoroughly mastered his English. Mr. Johns, it was good of you to call me so quickly and be so prompt in coming to my house. Morocco shook his hand, the muscles felt as though they were wrapped around piano wires rather than bones. A smart, capable boy. Morocco decided. he jerked a head toward the entrance. Do you always have the reception committee out front to find out if a fellow really wants to come in? The frown looked real. The quick questions in the eyes authentic. A reception committee. What can you mean? Three guys waiting for me when I step down into your garden. Guys who fancied themselves tough. One had a gun. I was supposed to stare in fascination at the gun while a couple of mugs with him cut me down with their saps. He waved a hand toward the windows. I've been rolling them down the hill. The olive face seemed to darken a couple of shades. That damned Santash, Pirano said. I suppose De Breva told you about Santash when you talked to him. Morocco nodded. Santash, he said dryly. Seem to be the main topic of De Breva's conversation. What's the idea? Is Santash starting to check on your callers and eliminate those his boys won't check through? How could Santash know I was expected? No one knows how Santash gets his information, but the black dog seems to know every move that he's made. Gardo Pirano made a quick gesture toward a telephone on a low teakwood taboret beside his legless chair. Sometimes I am quite sure he has my telephone tapped. Morocco merely grunted as he looked the room over. It was well worth a look. There were two other legless chairs upholstered in the same rich brocade. He noted a goya hanging over a mantle that looked as if it had been taken from some Venetian palazzo. The pile on the enormous rug was so thick that for a moment Morocco thought that he had forgotten to put his shoes back on. Two fantastically large sofas flanked the fireplace at gentle angles. The other chairs had legs but displayed the same custom-built originality as the ones with none. Morocco felt a fleeting nostalgic twinge for his own spacious and comfortable living room back in his hotel apartment in Chicago, a living room he was seldom privileged to enjoy. Gardo pirano's frown vanished. "'I'm a very bad host!' He clapped his hands once, and the houseboy entered from another door, pushing a portable bar in front of him. He pushed it the length of the room, left it in front of Pirano, and went out again without a word. Pirano gestured toward the bar with a long artistic hand. Your pleasure? I particularly recommend the brandy. At Morocco's nod, Pirano sloshed brandy from a squat, ancient-looking bottle into two large snifters and handed one to Morocco. He acknowledged Pirano's formal salute and sipped the brandy. It was as smooth as satin. Pirano sniffed and sipped, his eyes studying Morocco over the rim of the glass. How much did De Breva tell you? Morocco watched the dark eyes. Enough to explain why he was hiring me. He mentioned a slight matter of murder that Santosh is holding over you. Is that true? approximately, Perano said. Though I did not kill anyone, I just happened to be placed in an unfortunate position, a matter of a husband returning home at an unexpected moment. I knocked him down, dressed hurriedly, and left. Later, both husband and wife were found shot. Santosh could prove that I had been in the apartment about the time of the killing. I wouldn't have a chance in court." Morocco still watched the eyes that told him absolutely nothing. If you didn't kill Slade and his wife, who did? Do you feel Santosh did the job? Perano shook his head. Santosh wouldn't chance murder. He's too smart. But I think he knows who the real murderer is. A smile, as cold as a drift of blizzard, flittered across his face. Undoubtedly, Santosh is also blackmailing the real killer. Santosh never misses a chance. 500,000 bucks is a hell of a lot of money. It's too much money for a blackmailer to be demanding. How come? Again, the cold, meaningless smile flickered. Santosh seems to work on a sliding scale. When he demands blackmail, he does so with a complete knowledge of just what wealth is accessible to his victim. He seems to know to the final million just how much my family is worth. Parano paused, then asked, Is it de Breva's idea that my family will refuse to pay? Was that why he hired you? I repeat, a half million bucks is a lot of money. It becomes a hell of a lot more money when you try to convert that much Brazilian cash into American dollars. De Breva brought an idea with him from Brazil. He seems to have the idea that the right guy would be able to pry Santash off your neck. He also knows the tricks of blackmailers. He figures that maybe the half million Santosh demands is only the first installment. He could pay Santosh and then find out there's still a rope around your neck. Morocco paused, then added, I agree with De Breva. Blackmail of any kind has a habit of becoming a permanent assessment unless the blackmailer is trapped. Pirano's smile came back carrying a load of scorn. And you think that you can handle Santosh without landing me in court to face a murder charge? I can give it a powerful try, Morocco said. But Santosh is a difficult man to argue with, Pirano said. In fact, I might say he's a dangerous man to cross. Now you've got me all goosepimply," Morocco said, and I've argued with some very tough characters in my time. You haven't argued with anyone like Santash. If you had tried, you wouldn't be talking to me now. Anger darkened Pirano's face. I don't like De Breva's attitude. He is, after all, a mere servant of the Piranos. And a half a million to my family is nothing. I am a Pirano, and it is a question of my life and the Pirano name. The money should be paid. Morocco gave a fraction of a shrug. That would seem to be a point to be decided by your family and de Breva. After all, de Breva is just a lawyer. Any decision he would bring north would be the family's decision. When Pirano said nothing, Morocco spoke. You seem rather eager for the family to pay Santash off. Perhaps a half million doesn't mean much to you. Again, anger darkened Pirano's face. The Piranos have always been of a wealth that allowed them to afford much more than that to protect a member of the family. And I, after all, am the only son of the family. Morocco took a delayed sip of brandy, then asked, Anything else you know that might help me? Pirano shook his head. You have all I know. I told you my position and what Santosh knows. He has made his demand for blackmail. I do not know anything about Santash except that he heads some sort of cult and is also an extortionist and blackmailer. Rising to his feet, Morocco glanced regretfully at the half-finished brandy in his snifter. With company that he liked, he would have enjoyed finishing it and perhaps having a second. In this airy, perched on the cliffs with Pirano, he had had enough. Pirano rose with him. You'll not get a cab up here for ages. I'll have Soto drive you back to your hotel. I believe you said it was the Knickerbocker in Hollywood. Morocco didn't offer to shake hands with Pirano again. Pirano didn't seem inclined to make the gesture either. He merely said, raising the thin pencil line of his eyebrows inquiringly, with a politeness that meant nothing, You will call me should your investigation begin to show any results. You just don't give a damn, do you? Morocco said. This whole business is just one of those regrettable little things. Parano grew a couple of inches taller and his face froze completely. I am a Parano. We do not parade our feelings, especially before a hired private detective. The family has money. They will pay, regardless of what de Breva may say. Parano had started to close the door behind Morocco. When Morocco halted and turned back to say, I guess I didn't make it quite clear enough. There's a dead man down the slope against the brick wall somewhere. It seems he slipped when he was running down the steps and broke his neck. It occurred to me that you might want to do something about him before he starts to smell up the place. However, like blackmail, I imagine it's something on which you'll want to make up your own mind. Be seeing you. Soto, his flat, yellow-brown face as full of animation as a Hubbard squash, drove Morocco down winding roads past privacy-hugging walls that screened Mediterranean villas, Spanish castles, Swiss chalets, and a couple of eastern mosques, until he hit the highway. He left Morocco in front of the Knickerbocker without having spoken a word. In the Knickerbocker bar, Morocco ordered a snifter of the bar's best brandy and listened to an unemployed comedian demonstrate how funny he was to a top-drawer producer at his side. He was implying, with a conspicuous lack of subtlety, that the public was being deprived of one of the best because of the biased and short-sighted attitude of most producers. Morocco found his demonstration singularly unfunny. The brandy, when Morocco sipped it, was good enough, but it didn't belong in even a backstairs relationship with the Pirano bottle. He sipped thoughtfully, staring at himself in the bar mirror. The ache in his shoulder throbbed dully, echoing the vague and formless anger in his brain.
0: We hope you enjoyed listening to this excerpt from Morocco Jones, The Syndicate Murder Cult. If you would like to hear the entire audiobook, it can be purchased at Amazon.com, Audible.com, and iTunes.com.